Hello everyone, welcome to American Billiard Radio. Today, well, when I say today, I mean the day this is being posted, is Thursday, August 23rd. This is not being recorded on Thursday, August 23rd, as I will be watching players at the Turning Stone Classic 30 on August 23rd. I'm taping this ahead of time, so there really isn't a lot of news to go over. If, if there was news in the last week or so, then we'll have to catch up with it after Turning Stone. So without that, I'm going to get right to the interview. Uh, I had a fairly long interview with Thomas Overbeck this time. We talked about the Euro Tour, the EPBF, the European Championships, and we also talked about what the EPBF does for pool in Europe in comparison to what happens here in the States. It, it really is a night and day difference between what they have built there and what we have here in the States. And honestly, it it gives you an idea just how much work is involved in in trying to build what they have built. So I'll give you a chance to listen to all that. Here we have my conversation with Thomas Overbeck. And I'm joined now, all the way from Germany, Thomas Overbeck. Thomas, what uh, what exactly is your position with the EPBF? I'm the press officer of the EPBF. Okay. And that means that you're at every one of the events. Um, are there other responsibilities? Well, yeah, I travel with the Euro Tour. I am with all, usually we have six events a year. And normally I'm in all three European championships that we have in a year. We have one for uh, men and women in a wheelchair. Then we have one for the youth and one for the seniors and ladies. This year we had the anniversary event, so uh, we played it all together. And I'm doing the the press work there. I write press releases. I am looking that people get the pictures. I'm coordinating things. I'm doing Facebook Live. I help with the Kazoom live stream and um, all this kind of stuff. It sounds like quite a bit of work. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. It is. It's uh, when I'm at those tournaments. Um, it's more or less, uh, yeah, a all day job. I mean, you start in the morning. You see what what will happen during the day. Then you plan the day. You see what's going on. But the problem is the problem. Pro problem in parentheses. You cannot really plan the day because you don't know what's going to happen. You know. I mean. That's like uh, if, if Ralf Soké beats Joe Blokes, nobody's really interested in that. But if Joe Blokes beats Ralf Soké, that's a big story then. But I don't know if that happens. As far as the media goes, when you think about what you do and then you've got photographers there and you've got Kazoom there, I mean, how many people are involved with the media side of your events? Uh, we it depends. We have between two and five people from Kazoom there. We have um, a photographer there. We have myself there. We have David there who coordinates things in the background. So all in all, a total of uh, depends between six to ten persons per event. This event we had Rico Dix there, former Dutch top player, who also helped me a little bit with my press work. But he won't be there for future uh, Euro tours. It was just for this big anniversary event because 60 tables was really hard to cover. Right. And and when you talk about covering 60 tables, Kazoom streams every table? Yes. We had uh, all tables in live stream. Well, what we're going to do is, you know, um, this live stream, what people or what some people don't realize is we stream with very high quality 
We have one TV table where a lot of um, cameras are set up. We have uh, two cameramen and one cutter for that one table only. Um, and that's, of course, is a, is a very big effort. And then we have uh, the other cam tables are so-called one-cam tables. And, um, of course, you got to somehow refinance that. So what we do is we stream. Uh, we, we have a pay-per-view where you get a, a one-year account or a three-months account or a 10-days account, whatever you prefer. And then for the last event, for example, you had access to 60 tables live, so you could watch every player, every match, whatever it was, you could watch live. Additionally, we do some Facebook coverage uh, where we want to attract people, where we want to show what the quality is. We always pick one event, uh, one match a day. Sometimes we come up with an extra one or a special one. This is more of a promotional thing, so we want to show the people for free, look, this is what you can get all day long, and you can, you can then pick two players that you want to watch. When you watch on Facebook, it's us picking them. How long does it take them to set up for, I mean, certainly 60 tables, that's got to be multiple days to get ready for. Um, are you, when you say them, are you talking about the Kazoom people, the, the camera people, or do you, are you talking about the, the table fitters? Well, actually, I was, my first question was about Kazoom, but I did want to talk about you know, the event itself. It's, it's a huge event. Yeah. Well, um, as far as I know, they started on the 8th with uh, setting up the tables, and Kazoom went in on the 14th and then the event started on the 19th. That's out of my memory. Um, I, I might be one day wrong here, there, but that's about what, what, the, what it needs to, to set up something like that. I mean, 60 tables, that was an anniversary thing. I don't know if we are going to do that, um, maybe for the 50th anniversary, but that's 10 years down the road. Um, but the Euro tour will most likely be 20 to 24 tables, but they will also all be on live stream. And uh, also, this is uh, sometimes a challenge. Oh, I'll bet. Now, the the early PR that I read from the European Championships said 550 players from 37 countries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We had a lot of uh, different <clears throat> divisions. As I said, normally we have three uh, European Championships per year. This this was now done altogether. We had men men's division, women's division, wheelchair division, uh, under twenty under twenty three, under nineteen, under seventeen ladies, which is uh, mature females, uh, seniors, which is the uh, mature males. Um, did I forget anyone? Girls <laughs> division we have, and and the players. You, you get 550 players showing up and they're not playing for prize money. Well, the teams are, you know, the, pr the prize money aspect is something, um, it's, it's a European championship. And when you see many of uh, the good players are the ones that come through and make a big, uh, get big in the sports, uh, they got the title. Now it's a little bit also up to themselves um, with regards to what they do with the title. You know, We feel that that title should be a very coveted thing, should be a very um, good thing. Um, but yes, it's true, the European Championships, the individuals are not played for prize money. While it's not for prize money, there is some kind of a connection there with the Olympics, right? Or, or, or the Olympic situation? 
with regards to what uh, well what we do is we uh, um nominate when we do the nominations for world championships or every four years for the world games or uh, international events big events we use the uh, either the Eurotour rankings but also the european championships the european nine ball champion and i think this runner-up and uh, depending on the division sometimes also the third place they automatically nominated for the world championships so it's a nomination criteria as well mm -hmm. okay and you said you've been doing this for 40 years uh, the EPBF, not me. <laughs> <clears throat> not me. I am uh, doing this since 1990. Not the press officer, but involved with Billiard since 1990, so it's 28 years. Um, the EPBF uh, celebrated its 40th birthday or anniversary this year. And and what all is the EPBF involved with? There's the Euro Tour, and then the EPBF is basically to the European game what the BCA is or is supposed to be to the American game, right? Yes. Well, um, see, we have um, uh, we have had some countries back then in Europe, mainly Germany, Sweden. Um, where the game was pretty big. Um, Sweden, because they have a very close relationship with America, Germany also, and we also had a lot of uh, American soldiers in our country that introduced the game to us. And of course, they played, and then it's a mentality, you know, you're, maybe that's a European thing. I don't know. We get together in clubs and in teams, and we play against each other, and then you have national championships, and you win them, and then what? Nothing happens anymore. So then, back then, a few people got together, and they said, why don't we start spreading this all over Europe? And we started with a few countries, or they started, I should say, with a few countries and then promoted it to other countries and other countries saw what was going on and they liked it. And um, nowadays I can say, and we are pretty proud of that, that with all that we have achieved, we have several, um, many countries that receive uh, governmental funding through their sports um, authorities. And we have uh, some countries that even have uh, pool billiards as a school subject where the pupils can, can learn billiards in school. And the billiards is organized through the school system. So we've come quite a long way with um, our way of thinking there. And you guys are you guys run the Euro Tour. You, won, you run the European Championships. You, like you had said, you guys handle the invites to world championships and that sort of thing. Is there more involved than that? More involved with regards to what? I mean, do you guys do you guys do more than that? You know, in the background uh, for the European players, or did I pretty much sum it up? Well, uh, we do a lot for the for for the game for the players. Depends on what you say or what you mean when you say for the players. What we, for example, do is. When we nominate players for the World Championships, the EPBF normally covers the travel costs. Um, then what we do is we have a big uh, um, uh, um, nah, uh, education system. We educate uh, referees. We educate um, tournament directors. We have an exchange program, for example, for some years now where we send referees to Asian tournaments. And we have had two Asian referees now in Europe. They always send two for the big EC. Uh, this time it was two Koreans. Last year we had was one from Singapore and one from China or Taiwan. I don't really remember. 
So, yeah, um, this is also stuff that needs to be organized. You know, we have these symposiums. Now we had an anti-doping symposium in the Netherlands where we kind of, together with the Dutch uh, National Anti-Doping Organization, informed our players what they should do, what they're supposed to do, what they can't do, um, you know, this kind of stuff. That's also work that we do in the background, but that's nothing that uh, you should write about. That's nothing that um, <laughs> you don't make the fancy stories with that. Right. It sounds almost like a full-time job. Well, yeah, it um, that depends. I mean, during those tournaments, it definitely is. In between tournaments, um, it's not necessarily a full-time job. It depends uh, when, when you talk about me. I mean, I also own a pool room in Germany since uh, 22 years now. But I am pretty often away for the EPBF. That might be tournaments. That might be educational stuff like I, this referee education I do autonomy director's uh, education. So, yeah, it's, it takes some time away from you. Let's put it that way. Okay. Maybe you can help explain something for me. It, it, was, it was explained to me a few years ago, and I think it was in Germany, that there's a commitment that you have to make for a certain number of years to, I want to say at the time it was the military or something like that, but somehow billiards could be done in lieu of that. I, I Do you know what I'm talking about? <clears throat> um, maybe what you're talking about is our, our German army has the uh, so-called sports platoon, where from all different sports division athletes can go join the German army and um, basically do their practicing for their sports. But being employed by the army, they uh, receive... Um, Financial, of course, they, they get a, a wage. They, they earn their living from the army, but they're free to do their sports. And in order to be able to do that, um, you need to be recognized as a sport among others, which we are since 1998, since uh, we are a member of the Olympic family. And then, of course, it had to be applied for by the government and so on and so forth. Um, but yeah, that's possible. Ralf Suki and Thorsten Hohmann both were in the sports platoon of the German army. And how many other sports are there that uh, that Germans can can do this through. Uh, you mean the sports platoon in the army? Yes. Um, as far as I know, it's basically all sports that are recognized by the Olympic uh, Committee. Um, of course, there are some sports that are not necessarily popular for it. For example, football, because football players earn 10 or 100 times more than you would earn in the army. But there's a lot of sports like those winter sports, biathlon or um, skiing, you know, all those kind of sports. We have a lot of those that go to the army and uh, then they can make a living and do their sports like professional. And they can do that for how long? Uh, now you got me. Now you got me, Mike. Um, I know it's two years or four years. I don't know the exact amount of time. And also our... Bundeswehr has uh, some changes at the moment, so I can't really give you a time there. But I know it's either two or four years it used to be, I think. And you referred to the the players, at least in Germany, as athletes, which I think is a big difference between Europe and America. In Europe, pool players consider themselves athletes. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, 
you mentioned Ralph and you mentioned <clears throat> Torsten. I mean, they they look at at the game as much more than just being able to walk around a pool table and make balls. It's it's all about eating right and exercising and that sort of thing. Is that just a different mentality in Europe? Yeah, it's a different mentality in in Europe as far as I'm concerned. Maybe it's also a different mentality um, in the modern times. I remember when I joined the game in 1990, a lot of athletes or players, whatever you want to call them, you know, they came from the gambling scene and they said, well, you know, they played the nights through money games and so on and so forth. This is um, not very successful nowadays. Because when you have an opponent like Kazuki or Niels Feyen or um, Joshua Filler the next morning, this, these guys, you know, they watch what they eat. They go to the gym, they sleep well, they get up in the morning, they have a healthy breakfast, and then they're as fit as you can be. So um, that's that's a difference. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know what the situation is in America. Let's put it that way. I haven't met too many Americans with that kind of attitude in our sport. Well, I live here and I haven't met a whole lot of American players with that attitude. Um, you mentioned gambling. Is gambling, fr from our point of view, and when I say our, I mean fans in America, from what we see, gambling is not a big part of, of pool in Europe. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Um, back then when we started with the Euro Tour and when we tried to gain Olympic recognition, um, there were a few things that we had to be aware of. One thing is, um, you know, the, the, the way people, how you say that, the way people uh, were aware of uh, when they talked about or when you talked about billiards is mainly through movies like The Color of Money, you know, um, that had to do with gambling, smoking and bashing your cue stick over one another's uh, heads and so on. So when you then come and say, hey, you know, uh, put your kids in our club and we teach them how to play billiards, every child, every parent would say, no, thank you. You know, let them play football or ice hockey or something serious, but not billiards. Now we said, okay, we have to get away from that image. Image. That's why we started with a very strict dress code, which was back then way too strict. We have loosened that, but still we have it. And because we want to present ourselves in a certain way, uh, we also expect um, a certain behavior from our athletes. And yes, I speak of athletes because um, we would like to bring the sport forward. And, and uh, I, it's, it's hard, you know. There's certain factors that you need that have to work together. Um, and that's not only organizers, that's also players. But uh, if you want to achieve something, you have to be, you know, if you want to move forward, then you have to come to a certain acceptance in our society. And to our belief, that acceptance will probably not be reached when you have um, the gambling aura around you, but more the sportsman aura around you. You know, we don't really encourage that. I mean, we, we they're adult people, don't get me wrong. What they do in their leisure time, we cannot control. But we have practice times at night, for example, till 11 at night when we have the Euro Tour, and then it's over. And when the players come and say, hey, can we go and play some pool? No. No, you can come back tomorrow morning at 8, and the round begins at 8.30, and then you can practice again. And the players all understand this? No, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> of course not. No, no, no. 
Of course, you get a lot of um, you get of a lot of criticism. Uh, sometimes it's um, justified criticism. Criticism. Sometimes it's complete nonsense. Um, when you read things on Facebook or on social media, I should say, um, it's it's apparent that always the players that lost and that didn't have a nice tournament, they tell you what all goes wrong. They don't even never think about themselves. Um, and they say, ah, the game doesn't go anywhere. Why doesn't the game go anywhere? I mean, I can remember, I can tell you a little story. While I was the sports director of the WPA, we had a tournament in Fujairah, which is one of the Arab Emirates. And uh, we had a reception by the ruler back there. And where he wanted to see us and a few of the top players. So we did that and we told the top players that we're going to see the ruler. And we had one player. Um, I'm not going to mention a name. I'm just saying he comes from... <clears throat> Maybe he holds the same passport as you, if I could say. <laughs> he wore shorts and a T-shirt. And then you say to the player, "Look, do you think this? If I mean, if you would meet your president, do you think that that would be this, the dress that you should be wearing?" And he says, "Yeah, but it's really hot out here." <laughs> <laughs> you say, "Okay, I give up. What can I do?" You know, it seems like with running the champion, the European Championships, running the Euro Tour. I mean, certainly you say that the players complain about where the game is going, which from our side of the world, it seems like you guys are, are much further along than we are. Um, what did it take for the players in Europe to buy into that belief? I mean, basically they're, they're supporting the EPBF in a big way. Was, was that a hard transition to get them all to buy into that in the beginning? In the beginning, yes. In the beginning, yes, and sometimes it still is nowadays because, of course, I can understand the frustration. And believe me, of course, we would love to throw money at our players that we would pay out to the 200th place, still 10,000 per player. Unfortunately, that amount of money is not in our game. But then when you see, or in our sports, I should say, but then when you look around, I mean, one mistake that many people make is they compare themselves to football players or, in your country, basketball players or ice hockey players. But I tell you, the, there's only a few sports where you have this tremendous amounts of money being paid. There's a lot of sports. We have a canoeing, seven times world champion woman here in Germany. She she gets nothing, you know. I mean, there's a lot of, lot of sports out there that are below us money-wise. And we're trying to get somewhere. However... It's hard to achieve that if not everybody works in the same direction. Let me put it that way. Yeah, I can understand that. Um, you know, again, in America, you've got the WPBA. And when the players all agreed to work, all agreed to allow the WPBA board to, to work for them and speak for them, they had a successful situation. And, I don't know that that's lasted, but, you know, it sure seems that the players working together for a common goal is a huge part of it, but corralling them to do that is, is tough work. Of course it's tough work. And um, I've seen many people in the last 28 years giving up on it. It is hard work, and it's always it's hard work to sometimes tell the same thing again and again and again, 
And sometimes it's hard work to try to explain why you do things or why you don't allow things and why you don't want certain things. You know, I mean, for example, a very easy thing, you know, <clears throat> some people still go out and uh, take a time out and go out in the lobby and light a cigarette. And then you right. you think, you know, we're, we're trying to sell this as a sport. We're trying to be on the Olympics. Now with Paris 2024, I think it is, coming up, we have um, uh, um, an application for that. And and you guys should help. You, you know, what do you do if somebody happens to stand there who would either like to sponsor this or who would like to invest in this or who would like to elevate this to the next level and then he sees the athlete coming out in the middle of his match lighting a cigarette and says, ah, that's very good you know <laughs> that, that's things and and what we of course do is we penalize those people we say if you have a cigarette during your match you lose a wreck if you do it twice you're done from the event and then they say ah oh, you know you want to discipline us we're not little children no of course you're not but you got to understand what we are doing you know and that defeats the object if, if you behave like that and i must say That example that I just gave is very exceptional. You know, most of them don't do it. As far as I'm aware, I don't see it anymore. Uh, we've overcome this. But there are other things where you would think um, it would be easier to cooperate if we would both uh, strive for the same goal. And as far as we know in America, The entire Olympics thing is being pushed by the WPA. We we always see it as the WPA is in charge of that. You guys certainly, and you personally, know more about how that's coming together than we do in America. Are, are you guys involved with that? I mean, certainly more than the BCA, but what is your involvement with that that goal? Well, of course, we are 100% behind the... Um the goal to become an Olympic sport. Um, I mean, we are a sports among others, but we're not on the, on the agenda of the Olympics, which we would like to, to be. <clears throat> um, we, uh, if I would say that we are happy with everything our governing bodies do, that's the WPA or the WCBS, I would be not telling the truth. We do have our arguments here and there. But in the end, we both uh, should go in the same direction. And of course, we support. I can give you an example. Those doping tests that we do, uh, we don't do them because we have uh, too much money and we like to spend thousands <laughs> of euros on those tests. But they are um, mandatory by WADA. WADA, through the IOC, tells all sports federations you have to do a certain amount of doping tests uh, throughout the year. And if you don't do that, you're at risk of losing your Olympic recognition. Now, here we go. Of course, we take our responsibility there and do that. Though, again, we're not a rich sports and these things really cost money because you have to have authorized testing personnel in the different countries coming. Then you have to send the uh, probes to the respective laboratories and get them analyzed and all that kind of stuff. So it's it's quite an investment, but we're happy to do that if we support because we feel we support the right idea with it. Have you had players caught up in drug testing? I mean, have you had players that came back with a positive? Uh, yes, we have. Um, 
Doping in billiards is not necessarily as it is in other sports like weightlifting. You know, the, you have these uh, anabolic steroids that make your muscles grow, uh, that you look like Hulk. This wouldn't help you with pool. But what helps you with pool a lot are the so-called beta blockers, which calm you down. So they are on the list in our sport. Of course, the steroids and everything is also on the list. But to be honest, I don't see pool players using them. Uh, we have the three, or let's say two main problems is uh, people don't care. You know, we have some other sports, the, the, the athletes finish when they're 30 or between the 30 and 35th or 40th year. Our pool players are also older. Now, when you get older, you might get heart problems. And when you get heart problems, the doctor prescribes you a beta blocker. Now, there's a, an easy way to handle that. What you do is you tell your doctor that you're an athlete, and then you apply for a therapeutical use exemption called TUE with your national anti-doping organization. Normally, you get it, and then you have it with you. Now, you test it. You show this to the testing personnel. All is good. You don't have that test. You're done for four years. So that's one category, the people who are just not aware too much. That's why we do have these anti-doping symposiums, why we try to uh, make our athletes aware of those things. Uh, the second thing is, um, as you have in all society, the druggies. You know, some people use drugs every once in a while, and depends on when you do it. Drugs uh, are only uh, forbidden in competition, not out of competition. That's the two things that WADA uh, um, determines in and out of competition. But whenever you take it, you might have uh, you might be over a certain limit while you're in competition, and then you also test a positive. And then we had a um, an unfortunate situation last year where we had a player from Southern Europe um, being elected for the doping control, and he refused to go. And uh, that was noted. And from that moment on, it's completely out of our hands because WADA then takes control. And this player is banned for four years. He may not participate even in a local tournament in his hometown for the next four years. Um, the reason why I'm very into this also is because I'm also the WADA representative, uh, the, the anti-doping representative of the uh, EPVF. And I used to be the anti-doping representative of the WCBS. So I'm a little bit um, in that item. So, and I'll mention player names, but I'm not in any way at all suggesting that this would happen. My question, though, is if you have a player of, let's say, Ralph or Torsten or Nils, you know, at, at, as big a players as they are, if something were to happen and they were to test positive, they would be banned from European competition for four years? Depends on what they do, yes. And the thing is, um, as I said, if, if you know WADA regulations, that's out of our hands. What happens then is, uh, you got to understand how this test works. You know, this test, you have to order the test. So the, there's authorized people coming, they take their probes, it's A and B samples, and they're sent to a, to a laboratory. And then let's say it's found positive. So then... The, the result goes to the athlete, it goes to us being the uh, federation that ordered the test and the national anti-doping organization of that athlete's country, the federation where the player comes or the athlete comes from, and to WADA. And then the respective um, disciplinary authority has to 
act on that player. Now, for example, we had that case last year with that player from the Balkan because we he came back hours after and he excused himself and said, look, I really didn't want to do that. I blew my top, I know, but, you know, I lost 9-8 and I was um, in a bad mood and I can take that test whenever you want. So the WCBS being the responsible organization gave him two years, a ban of two years. And that was then challenged by WADA. They took the WCBS to CAS, the Court of Arbitration and Sports to Switzerland, and said, look, the regulations clearly say if an athlete refuses a test, it has to be four years. Billiards had just had that. They had two players on the two years on the player. That must be changed. And we had to change. Is there are there other reasons that a player would be banned from competition in Europe? I mean, is it just WADA or, or is there, you know, if a player, if a player has a, an outburst, you know, if, if, mm-hmm. if they just really behave themselves poorly, can they mm-hmm. be penalized at that level? Of course. Of, co- <clears throat> of course. It depends on what the player does or what the, what the athlete does. And, um, um, for example, we also have the situation where we have, uh, um, how you say that, uh, the tournaments that happen to happen on the same date, you know, when you have right. a clash of dates. And then normally we try to speak to organizers, we try to do our best to p- prevent that from happening. But um, it could lead to a situation that we tell our athletes, look, if you choose to play in that event, we can't stop you, we cannot stop you from that. But what we can is stop you from continuing to play in our events. So uh, you can we, we cannot, um, you know, according to the legal situation, you cannot tell a human being or an adult person which events he or she should be allowed to play. But what you can do is you could show the consequences if somebody goes and plays that you say, then we don't welcome you in our events anymore, which has nothing to do with, with uh, um, that you want to tease those players or that you want to show them that you're the big guy. It's a simple reason to show other organizers that, of course, we are willing to cooperate. And I mean, for example, with Metroom, you know, Metroom is a big organizer in our sports and we have a very amicable um, uh, <clears throat> amicable connection with them, relationship with them, and uh, we speak. And um, they, for their events like Moscone Cup, they use the Euro Tour and, and some other events as ranking events. And we speak, we give them our dates, they give us their dates. And yes, sometimes it happens that we have a clash. Last year it happened because the WPA didn't communicate. They made the mistake there. So we said, okay, we don't want to hurt the players. We don't want to hurt the matchroom. We don't like it. But for this time, we make an exception. We let the players go. But for example, if an organizer would now step up, and say, I make a tour through Europe and I pick the dates and those dates clash with our Euro tour. Then we would tell our players, look, you gotta, you, you can't dance on two weddings at the same time. I mean, if you play his <laughs> events, good. Then you don't play ours anymore. And that in the past helped very often to kind of uh, make those people think that it's better to cooperate than rather go against one another. You know, we're not a big sports. We should work together, not against each other. 
And how many times, I mean, I'm not asking for a, a specific number, but has that happened often in the past where players played in other events and, and had to be penalized like that? A few times, yeah. And they understood that? <laughs> well, that's a tricky one now to answer. Um, they understood that. Uh, some, let's put it that way, the ones that understand it, they don't go. Right. Because they see that we are doing it for them also. You know, we try. Let's. I, I give you an example. Let's say you organize a North American big tournament there, yeah? And then you, of course, try to look for sponsors. Now you find a sponsor and um, you tell the person, look, we have the top 50 players, North American players here. This is going to be the big in the news. And, you know, I give you this, that, and the other. And your sponsor is okay with it. So then I come up and I put a tournament up in the same dates and 25 of the 50 top players come to my tournament. Now so your sponsor comes to you and says, look, you told me the 50 top players are there. They're not. It's only 25. And out of the top 10, five are missing. Right. Right? So that's the damage. I mean, in the end, the players pay it or the athletes play, pay it because then, you know, the sp of course, the sponsor says, look, you, you, don't, you can't deliver what you told me. I'm not paying for that. And then you go. So you have to protect yourself. And, you know, part of the reason, well, the main reason that I, I even asked the question is because the idea of something like that happening in America is just so outlandish. I, I mean, if, if the BCA or if any organization in America were to tell a player, if you, if you compete in this other event, then you can't play in any of ours. And I realized that we don't have, you know, the BCA doesn't have a series of events like you guys do, but I just think the the outroar would be huge if, the, if that were to happen in America. Yeah, but maybe that's because you have a different approach on, on these things. Um, but first of all, I mean, now this is the European way of thinking, and I'm not saying that we do everything better, we and you guys do everything worse. You don't hear that. It's it's not what I try to tell you. It's just the way we deal with these things is in order for us, for a player to play one of our events, he must be a member of a national federation, a club, you know, some kind of member. And when you have your membership there, like in golf, when you become a member of a golf club, you accept their rules, meaning you don't do a barbecue on the green, right? <laughs> That's forbidden. Right. Okay, so... That's what you sign in when you join this golf club. And the same goes with us. When we have these things, we tell the players, look, this is our regulations. And, you know, we could tell you, again, we cannot tell you you're not supposed to play this tournament in ABZ or wherever. But what we can tell you is that we don't want you in our events then anymore because you defeat the object. We're trying to achieve something here and we have to work together. In the end, we're trying to work for you. And we try to explain that to the best of our ability. Sometimes it works, sometimes not. Now, I know that the American mentality is a bit different there. And um, it, I tell you, it, it does create problems. It creates problems in other countries also. Well, it, I mean, I've, I've made my feelings well known that the BCA and, and the, the situation here in America really needs to, to change. And, while I don't know that we could model it after what you guys do in Europe, 
it would certainly be a step in the right direction. I, I think so. I mean, um, the way I see it from a distance is uh, in, in your country, it's a big, um, there, there's many federations or many associations or many groups. Let, let me put it that way in your country. I mean, the member of the WPA is the BCA. They're a founding member and for many years are. Uh, but you have other groups there like the APA who now happen to uh, host world championships. Same does the BCA pool leagues. They happen to host world championships. And uh, you have the ACS and you have uh, so many groups over there, you know. That's hard. Um, we in Germany, we have the German Billiard Union, full stop. That's it. We have one federation responsible for pool, carom, snooker, full stop. In Europe, we have the European Pocket Billiard Federation, responsible for pool in Europe. In Austria, you have one ÖPBV, one federation for Austria. You know, we believe in this kind of structure and hierarchy because the rest is a bit chaotic and that's going backwards in time that's that's what it used to be in the 90s in the 90s everybody used to play their own rules everybody used to be a world champion because nobody tended to invite other people for it and um, that's what happened before now maybe that was because in that time communication wasn't there be between the countries and the existence wasn't even really known but nowadays you know we are much further ahead and um this is the structure that we believe in. Now, whether that could happen or work in your country or not, probably you could better judge on that than me. Well, yeah, I, I don't see that happening. Um, so what do you guys have coming up in the future uh, as, as far as future events and as far as planning uh, for years in the future? I mean, in growing what you're doing. And growing what we're doing is, uh, well, first of all, we try to achieve the consistency. We have a lot of uh, new countries that uh, want to host European championships. Of course, we have the Euro Tour with um, normally long-term contracts that we go to places um, that we have been gone before. Uh, but we also go to new places, but normally we do that with the European Championships. So next year it's going to be, I think, Italy and Serbia. We're going to be in Serbia next year. That's as far as I know. Uh, or let's put it that way, that's in, this, in the discussion at the moment. Um, there's so many things that, that need to be addressed. Um, and the sport is also... Um, it's not standing still, you know, it's developing, it's moving forward and we have to, we have to try and adjust to it and, and of course, try to improve. We're trying to have a good media presentation. We try to attract sponsors and, and uh, maybe raise the money that we can then pay out and prize monies and get more professionalism in the game. One last question, and this doesn't have anything to do with the EPBF. Um, the European Championships, Germany by far had the most medals, you know, the most of every type of medal, the most all over medals. Why do you think that is? What is it about the German players that, that make them that much stronger than other countries? Okay, that's, uh, I give you my personal opinion about that. Um, and uh, please bear in mind that I am German. I think this time, and I'm, I don't want to diminish any achievement here, but this time a little bit was luck. 
that had to do with it. Uh, when I see the results from last uh, or previous European Championships, we very we have a very strong Polish contingency, especially in the youth. Um, we do have, of course, Germany is a strong country in Europe. Yes, Sweden used to be a strong country. They are not as strong anymore. But the Netherlands is a strong country. Poland is a strong country. Austria is a strong country. The fact that Germany now won so many medals. Um, I'm not saying it's pure luck, don't get me wrong, that would be misinterpreted, but um, some titles could have gone the other way, and then you would have another display of it. It's good that Germany won it now, for me being German, that's, I, I, uh, I like the, the, the success, but if you play the same tournament, if you would play the same tournament next year, I'm not sure if you would get the same result. Let me put it that way. Okay, that seems fair. Well, Thomas, I'm not going to keep you any longer. I appreciate uh, the conversation. It lasted longer than I thought it would. Uh, it's certainly an interesting um, program you have in Europe, and, and certainly there are parts of it that I would love to see take place in America. But again, I, I certainly don't know how that would happen. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, to be honest, the last time I was in America was uh, last year. I went to the U.S. Open to uh, Norfolk, Virginia, and done some press coverage from the European angle there. Um, but uh, to be honest, I don't really know if there's many big tournaments on your soil. I mean, you have the U.S. Open, which are now being bought by Metroom, as far as I understood, and... Um, Nah, but the U.S. International Open will be also continued. And I think you have the Derby City Classic. And apart from that, the Appleton tournaments, yeah. Um, yeah, we have we have smaller tournaments. But, you know, as far as small events, there's one every weekend. You know, the top players can, can play for a couple thousand dollars in prize money just about every weekend. Mm-hmm. But again, there's no organization. <clears throat> maybe that's I, I don't know you know I don't want to come across like the schoolmaster who tells you what you should do and what you shouldn't do that's none of my business and I, I'm not entitled to but to me I see the structure that we have the system that we're working is uh, in quite, uh, definitely led us to be what we are at the moment now I know that uh, you maybe and your listeners don't like what I'm going to say now but I think we in Europe nowadays are the powerhouse and pool worldwide. When I remember in the 90s, it was only Americans taking the world championship titles. And it was some Europeans, many Asians. But nowadays, I think that we are very, very strong in Europe. And that is because we are on a constant high-level competition against one another. And we come up with those Eklend Kachis and um, Kazakis and, and Ruslan Chinahov, Dennis Grabe, you name them. You know, I mean... We have so many, Albin Ushan, Joshua Filler, we have so many of them. In, in, in the years when we started the Euro Tour, you could have like five to six people that might be able to win the Euro Tour. Nowadays, you have about 40 or 50 of them, when you see, that have a, a real chance to win the Euro Tour. We have good guys. you know, And um, that, to me, shows that the structure that we're working in cannot be so wrong. You know, I mean, we must have done something right uh, down the road. To, to get where we are right now. And um, I don't see why this would not work in, in your country. But then again, maybe there are some factors that I just don't see. 
Well, if you look at the results from Moscone Cup and Atlantic Challenge Cup, I think you definitely have uh, have reason to believe the way you do. Yeah, yeah, and I must say, <clears throat> excuse me, and I must say, um, of course, just like my German feeling, now I'm wearing my European hat in a way. I really uh, appreciate that. I enjoy it being European. On the other hand, I think it's a shame because I know that you have the potential out there. You do have probably a lot of good players. I mean, I don't see if you have less than ours. The thing is, if you don't uh, support them and if you don't, um, you know, educate them, then they will be like raw diamonds. Nobody will ever discover them. And, uh, you know, guys like Thorsten Hohmann, why was he discovered? He made his way through the German junior championships, then he became European champion. He went to the German army being a sports soldier. You know, he went that classic way to become where he is right now. Of course, it's his achievement. And I don't want to say that the Federation made him the way, but he had a, we gave him the platform to perform. You know what I'm trying to say? Sure. No, that makes perfect sense. And, you know, I can see that a lot of work has has taken place to build what you guys have, but it's certainly something uh, to look on with envy from outside of Europe. Well, I, uh, I don't know envy. Yes, maybe. I don't know. I mean, we are always happy to to um, help, you know. We would uh, help. We would help educate people. I mean, back then, when I was in the WPA, I also had some plans to standardize things worldwide, but that was not really accepted because other people didn't feel the need for that. So we just went ahead and did what we thought we had to do. And, um, I mean, nowadays, my opinion is we don't only have the strongest and best players in the world we also have the best organized tournaments my opinion and and i wouldn't argue with you all right thomas again i will let you go i appreciate your time and hopefully we will get a chance to talk to you again very soon are you coming to america uh for the international open uh i'm not sure yet uh, at the moment i it's not planned let's put it that way it could be on on short notice but at the moment it's not on my agenda Okay, well, I hope to see you soon either way. Yes, same here, Mike. Take care, stay healthy, and uh, it was nice talking to you. All right, talk to you soon. Bye-bye. All right, bye. All right, that was Thomas Overbeck. Very interesting conversation. Uh, you know, I've always, I've always looked at what we have here in the States as far as an organization of tournament directors and players and that sort of thing and thought, you know, God, it can't be that hard. But from what Thomas has described there, that's pretty extensive. And it's certainly not something that's going to be built, you know, part-time over a couple of months and, and, and build something that strong. Either way, I'm not sure who we're going to have next week. We should have a, a, an honest-to-God current interview next week since the the two trips that i'm going on will be over with but until then thanks for listening to american billiard radio and dave we're thinking about you 